Hi guys, welcome back to Brewing Bright Minds. Miss Natalie Waldman has been with us at our school, helping us support some of our students with speech services. And we just thought it would be amazing to have her join and bring her insight into the really loaded topic of speech language pathology. In your experience, um, I know we have seen a lot of um, uh, consequences mm. and um for years, how how COVID has impacted our students in the classroom. What are some patterns that you have observed um, pre-pandemic and and now with mm -hmm. your clients, mm -hmm. how they've been affected? I think the big thing that we see overall is um, differences in social skills. I think that during the pandemic, there was less opportunity to socially interact with other kids. Many kids weren't going to preschool. Um, and that was that was challenging. And so I think that a lot of it's social skills. And I think a lot of it, um, a lot of some of the differences that we're seeing is just there's some catch up to be done mm -hmm. because children who would have been identifying as needing support um, during the pandemic may not have been identified during that time. And so it feels like the numbers are increasing in terms of who needs support. But I'm wondering if maybe a piece of that is because Everybody was in emergency mode. Mm -hmm. Parents were doing the best that they could and working. And many times children were at home and they had to find a way to keep them, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. entertained or safe enough. Mm -hmm. And maybe that meant a lot of technology mm -hmm. or TV time. And what we know is that children need a lot of stimulation from people. And so I think Time will tell how it all shakes out, but the main things that I'm seeing that are different are social interactional skills and just like a backlog of kids who need support who maybe weren't identified during that time. Mm -hmm. What do you, what have you guys noticed in, in your school? Honestly, I think the main thing that I have noticed in our school and just in general in the early childhood world is the language delay mm -hmm. because five years ago, I did not see as many language delays mm -hmm. as I do now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that it is from the pandemic, but mm -hmm. it is just like you're saying, you know, the pandemic happened, which was a really big thing in everybody's lives. Yeah. And then just the advancement of technology has happened um, over the last five years and just a lot of different, um, different, you know, child-centered TV shows or child-centered mm -hmm. YouTube videos and things like that. And it's a lot of um, even... Uh, Childcare is a perfect example. A lot of families still don't have their children in childcare for the reason of what if it happens again or mm -hmm. all of the, you know, um, the germs and sickness and things like that. If maybe yeah, the, the fear behind the it. fear, yeah, mm -hmm. especially if there's somebody in the home who may be immune compromised or yeah. some an underlying condition and they don't want their um, children exposed. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, so they're at home and they're using technology more, like you said, or, um, yeah. So I think the biggest thing is honestly the language. And it. I think some of the limited research that I've read, of course, there's going to be more and more research coming out is that it's 
there's a belief that maybe parental anxiety or caregiver anxiety mm -hmm. has also contributed mm -hmm. to some of the communication differences that we're seeing, right? If you're in emergency mode as mm -hmm. the adult and the parent, your kids are feeling that and you're more worried mm -hmm. about putting food on the table and making right. sure your family's healthy. Like those are like Maslow's hierarchy is yeah. like, you got to take care of your most immediate needs yeah. before you can deal with the extras. And yes. in yeah. that moment in time, maybe that extra is having time to talk to your child or take them places. Yeah. It just wasn't always feasible. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing that I think has come up a lot is many parents and educators have asked me, do you think that masks contributed mm -hmm. to speech oh, yeah. or language delays? Mm -hmm. And so what I think I think it's probably nuanced. I don't think there's going to be a yes or no because you can't mm -hmm. account for all the other variables that were taking right. place. But what we do know is that blind children mm -hmm. learn language mm -hmm. in the same way mm -hmm. as seeing children do. So we know that it's not because of watching the mouth. Now, it's more muffled, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a mask on, it's mm -hmm. muffled. And maybe if you're predisposed to already having difficulty, it's certainly mm -hmm. going to make it more difficult. Mm -hmm. When I work with children on their pronunciation of their language, it's really important for them to see my mouth mm -hmm. because that's, they need that extra input. For, but yes. for a child who is uh, typically developing their communication, they might not need that extra support. So I think it'll be interesting to see how what we learn over time. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that, you know, everybody was just doing their best during a really difficult sure. time. Yeah. And, it'll be, and now we just have to do our best to support these children yeah. um, as best we can. Especially yeah. because, I mean, the children in this time right now were born during the pandemic mm -hmm. or you know, just before, like mm -hmm. they grew up in it. So anyone under the age of 10, really, I mean, all of mm -hmm. us, but mm -hmm. really children under the age of 10 are, um, mm -hmm. I think we're kind of, I don't want to say struggling, but we're, we're watching them a little closely, you know? Yeah. And I, and I suspect that a big piece of some of the communication differences is the increased reliance on technology during mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. And no shame again, like we, everybody was just doing whatever they could mm -hmm. to get through a really difficult time. Um, but the American Academy of Pediatrics has some really helpful guidelines in terms of what types of technology and when to introduce them mm -hmm. under typical ideal mm -hmm. circumstances. And so kind of, I think Technology in and of itself isn't problematic. Um, however, it depends on the amount and the type of mm -hmm. technology that a child's exposed to. Mm -hmm. And what we really see is the most important thing is that parents or caregivers are interacting while a child's engaging mm -hmm. yes. with technology. And that's kind of what takes it from a passive to more interactive and helps support the communication. So, yes, absolutely. So, um, it seems like the theme which uh, COVID kind of eliminated a lot of opportunities for that um, full-on engagement mm -hmm. because I mean we were working oh yeah we were at home we were doing all the jobs at once so absolutely there's going to be monumental consequences mm -hmm. of just being in that survival mm -hmm. mode but what kids really need from what I'm hearing from you is that just being fully present um, mom and dad not necessarily on a screen with 
child um, because uh, they lost out on that social piece mm -hmm. uh, and that eliminated so many opportunities for language development and those social skills. Mm -hmm. And so if you are with your child and not fully engaging with them and not promptly responding mm -hmm. to them and having conversations with them, then it's going to limit. It's going to mm -hmm. limit their ability to mm -hmm. learn and and engage with others because we're kind of dual tasking, right? Totally. At all the and also just an important thing to note, not to make this about technology, but during the pandemic, most companies turned to working from home. Mm -hmm. And so now the parents were on screens all day. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so the children were seeing the parents on screens all day. And then like you're saying, we're just doing our best to survive. And so maybe the child was having more screen time than mm -hmm. usual. And now that's where three years post pandemic is now we're all more addicted to screens yes. because it's a new reality. Yeah, I mean children and adults alike, we're all more reliant on screens because of it. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we now pull back right. a little mm -hmm. bit and readjust ourselves yeah. now that we can, you know, really carry on as as a normal day-to-day -day, mm -hmm. um our normal day-to-day -day lives but now give back give back yeah. to our family, give back to our kids mm -hmm. what was lost, um, not by fault of anyone, but now it's the opportunity to, with those critical years, now let's give back as much as we can, mm -hmm. look at these signs, mm -hmm. uh, be mm -hmm. aware of the resources we have and really be mindful of the data they're using mm -hmm. and what measures we should be using and now kind of pour back into mm -hmm. our kids so that uh, early intervention is most important. So. It's not too late. It's never too late. Mm -hmm. So giving that back so that uh, their later years, they're, you know, they develop more typically. And and hopefully what we like to say is if you provide that early intervention, it's as if that problem never, you know, never existed because now they're functioning just uh, more typically and are happy and um, are able to communicate and do everything to the best of their ability that they mm -hmm. wanted. Yeah. And I think that often early intervention can really um, help kids catch up. And if they're unable to catch up, because that is the reality for some children, mm -hmm. is that they won't, we're setting them up for success. Mm -hmm. And then to your point about just the children and how can we help them get back on track, I think kids are so resilient mm -hmm. and we get to capitalize on neural plasticity. Mm -hmm. That's the brain's ability to grow and change and evolve. And in those early years, we can build some new connections. And so it's amazing what uh, children, how they can bounce back from things when they're given the right supports. And I think you hit on such a good point to um, – as is feasible for families, because sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, but mm -hmm. as is feasible to try and pull back from the technology or be very mindful to interact while a child is engaged in technology. And again, the American Academy of Pediatrics has some good resources on that. When parents are at home, what are some signs that they should uh, be mindful of so that they can kind of, a red flag mm -hmm. goes mm -hmm. off and, okay, I should go seek yeah. speech services. Given that their that their child is not in a um, center based or a school at all. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about children like before they enter school, what kinds of things should right? Or if if there's like for? a stay at home parent, mm -hmm. or maybe um, a babysitter or a nanny, mm -hmm. yeah. um, maybe a child that's 
doesn't have siblings, not around any other children. So when we're talking about young children, some of the things we want to look for is that they are engaging with other people, that they show interest in others, that they respond to their name, and that we see that they're continuing to grow. So if they're using words, they're adding new mm-hmm. words on a regular basis. If we ever see the child has a skill and loses a skill, whatever type of skill that may be, that is usually an indicator that we need to talk to a pediatrician or gather some more information. And so I think um, that guideline when we're looking at just the vocabulary words, if we're looking at that minimum again of 50 words by 24 months, if your child's not there, that's the minimum expectation. Mm -hmm. So if they're not there at 24 months, it's a great idea to get some more information. And information's helpful. It's empowering. And it can be hard. And it can be scary, right, Mm -hmm. as parents because you're worried, like, what am Mm -hmm. I going to find if I Mm -hmm. do some digging? Um, And it can be reassuring that either your child's on track or you know exactly what's involved in in helping them be the best that they can be. So those are some of the skills. I also, again, really like ASHA.org has some great guidelines by age, so very specific. So if your child is 13 months, you can look and see kind of where would I hope my child would be at or what can I do to help and and when should I seek support? I think it's a good resource for more detailed mm-hmm. perfect kinds of things. And then once they're ready to take on that journey to mm-hmm. seek support, mm-hmm. um, what are their options? Mm-hmm. So it's such a good question, right? So maybe you're at home and you're thinking, oh, my child's quiet or they're not really engaging with others or they're not using that many words or maybe they're a little older. Maybe your child's three and you're really not understanding them. You might be wondering like, okay, so now what? <laughs> so um, the first place we start is with an evaluation. Evaluation is just information gathering. How does your child do at home? If they're attending school, how do they do at school? How do they do on standardized testing? And then we gather all that information and determine if they appear to be developing on track or if they need additional support. So where can you go if you're a parent? So if your child is under three, there is a nonprofit called the Regional Center. Our local one where we are is the RCOC, which is the Regional Center of Orange County. And they provide evaluations and therapy to um, families who qualify. And if you have financial hardship, they will step in. So they're a great resource for if you have concerns about your child, you need an evaluation, and perhaps finances are a concern, they are a great resource um, to be aware of. If your child is three and up, you can obtain a free evaluation. It's covered by your taxpayer dollars through your local public school. Mm In addition, there's other options which include um, going through a private therapist such as myself. So basically, there's two directions that we can go when we're looking at getting support for a child. There's two different models. There's the educational model and the medical model. Mm -hmm. The educational model is once your child is three and up, it's getting services through the schools. That means an assessment or therapy if they qualify through your public school, your local public school. There's some pros and cons to that, which Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to walk through. Um, But there's also the medical model. The medical model is um, you go to your doctor or provider or maybe your teacher says, I think we need more information, and you opt to go either through your insurance or privately and get 
services, get an evaluation, and then therapy if it's warranted. Mm -hmm. And the educational model is looking at can your child access their education? Mm -hmm. And so the criteria are very different, whereas the medical model is looking at can your child fully participate in their day-to-day activities? Is this impeding? Is your child so frustrated that it's becoming difficult to get day-to-day things done? Mm -hmm. So we're looking at two different things. So in the public schools, um, it is wonderful that there's this free taxpayer-covered resource, uh, the thing to be aware of. And I worked in the public schools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were a lot of things that we were not allowed to say. So mm-hmm. you are counseled. There are mm-hmm. meetings in which your legal counsel advises you as to what you may and may not say to parents. Mm-hmm. So the way that it works in the school district is if you have a concern for your child, you can get in contact with your school district and say, I have concerns about my child's communication. Can you please evaluate him or her? The school district, I believe the current guidelines are they have 30 days to respond to your request and then another 60 days to complete testing and hold a meeting with you to review the results. So if you're a parent who has concerns and maybe it's kind of snuck up on you and now it's Mm -hmm. become more of a feeling of emergency, that three months can be Mm -hmm. a long time to wait. But if if you're not that concerned about timeline or finances are a, a more of a driver, then you may want to wait that three mm-hmm. months and do it through the public school. So mm-hmm. I really think it's a very individual choice, but I like to make parents aware of what their options are. Mm-hmm. So when you go through the schools, the thing to know is that a child only qualifies if it if their communication difficulties are impacting their access to education. Mm -hmm. So everybody in the United States is eligible for FAPE, which is free and appropriate public education. So the obligation of the school is to make sure that a child can access their education. Your child has to be significantly behind Mm -hmm. before the public schools will offer therapy. And so many times what that means is When I worked on the schools, I would have to assess a child. And if they scored in the seventh percentile or below, they would qualify. So what that means is your child has to be in the bottom seven most. So like Mm -hmm. out of 100 kids, Mm -hmm. your child has to be performing at the bottom seven most Mm -hmm. before we're going to offer them services. There are sometimes workarounds that creative um, therapists in the schools will use where there's other ways that they can support that a child needs it. But again, things that I couldn't say then that I can say now, Mm, which I think is really important to Mm -hmm. share, is that in public schools, I can speak for speech therapists. It's an ongoing problem that our caseloads are very large. Mm -hmm. That means we're responsible for a lot of kids and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of paperwork involved and a lot of meetings. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what that means is that when you're overwhelmed because there's so many hours in the day and you really go in this profession because you want to help kids and you want to help their families. However, if a child is on the borderline of qualifying and you could go and do some extra work to get them on your case, you're not that inclined to do that when you're mm-hmm. overwhelmed and mm-hmm. don't even have mm-hmm. time in your day. So that's just something in the back, in the, mm-hmm. the back end behind the <laughs> behind the screens that yes. people might not. So you're you know. saying that even if they were at the cusp of qualifying for those services, more often than not, they may not because you can't do the extra due diligence to help them qualify mm-hmm. for it. That's a common problem. I, th- I think 
nobody wants that to be the case. Mm-hmm. I don't think any therapist or mm-hmm. school, frankly, like mm-hmm. anybody who cares about kids and their education don't, doesn't want that to be the case. But the burden is to prove that the child cannot access their education. It's not to say that they don't have difficulty, yes. that they have yes. difficulty accessing their education. So what you should know as a parent <laughs> is that I sat in many, when your child is evaluated and you have that meeting to discuss the results, is called an IEP meeting. Mm-hmm. It stands for Individualized Education Plan. And that IEP meeting is if your child does qualify for services, then they outline what services your child is eligible for. So maybe speech therapy at the school two times a week, this amount of time, yes. this many minutes. But you may also sit in one of those meetings and they may say your child does not qualify. So many times having these meetings, it was a very painful experience for me personally because I was not legally allowed to say Mm -hmm. your child doesn't qualify, but (laughs) you should definitely get some outside Mm -hmm. support because the school district is on the hook for paying for those services Mm -hmm. if you say that. Mm -hmm. So we weren't allowed to say that. So what I think is really important for parents to know is the schools are wonderful source of support in many in schools are doing the best that they can Mm -hmm. and for some kids it is a great resource to be aware of you can save money and you can do it if your child's attending a public school they can reap those services Mm -hmm. if they qualify but know that if your child doesn't qualify it does not necessarily mean they don't need support it just Mm -hmm. means there's their situation is not significant enough to be eligible for education there comes the medical model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the medical model says, how's your child doing in terms of functioning day to day? And so those evaluations are done a little differently. If you're going in the medical model, you have the option to go through insurance or private. In the insurance route, your insurance is guiding what qualifies the child to receive services as well as the frequency of services that your particular plan will cover. So unfortunately... Again, when it comes to insurance, many plans are doing the best they can to mm-hmm. not provide services. Mm-hmm. So it's really incumbent on a parent to call their insurance plan. I actually have a cheat sheet on my website that I send, I shared with all parents that are considering services where they can call their insurance provider and get really good information about like what's covered, mm-hmm. how often, what situations. So for example, I'm a private therapist. I've opted to be private because it allows me to do what I feel is best for children and their families mm-hmm. without insurance um interfering like I find that seeing children in their schools is a natural environment Mm -hmm. where they tend to feel more comfortable where I can collaborate with Mm -hmm. teachers and educators and then also with parents so we get better results for children Mm -hmm. typically many insurance providers would not allow me to see a child in their home Mm -hmm. or in their school Mm -hmm. So it's just, again, it's choice and everybody has decisions that they need to make as to what works best for their family. So it's just good to know if you go the medical route, you often need a referral from your pediatrician to go through your insurance to obtain evaluation and therapy. The pro of that, of course, is we have insurance. We want to be able to use it when we have health insurance. The con is there's many limitations and also um, oftentimes when we're doing therapy in a clinic, 
So your child, let's say they're eligible for speech therapy, they go to a clinic. In order to make the financial numbers work, because insurance reimbursement continues to drop over time, making it unsustainable for many professionals continue to Mm -hmm. deliver services as they would like, it requires that many practices need to use a speech-language pathology assistant to deliver Mm -hmm. services. Mm -hmm. So it's not a speech-language pathologist. Now, is that per se a problem? Not necessarily. I have met SLIPAs, that's an abbreviated version for Mm -hmm. speech-language pathology assistant. I made SLIPAs that are amazing. They know their stuff. They really Mm -hmm. do. And I've met SLIPAs who have less experience or, you know, and less education. And it can change the results of what your child receives. And so it's just something to be aware of. It isn't just like for parents to know. And there are a lot of things that you wouldn't know mm-hmm. <laughs> um, unless you have this conversation. Yes. And that leads to many parents opting to choose someone like me. Yes. I'm a private speech therapist. I don't take insurance. What I do do is I provide an invoice called a super bill and then parents submit it to their insurance mm-hmm. to if they are eligible for mm-hmm. what's called out-of-network reimbursement. Mm-hmm. So many families I work with are able to get some reimbursement that way or families just opt to just pay because the insurance yeah. will cover mm-hmm. so little or they can't get in. The wait lists are really mm-hmm. long. Mm-hmm. So I always tell parents, these are all the options that mm-hmm. are available. The most important thing is that you get your child the support that they need and just know the pros and cons of of each yes. and determine what works best for your family and your child and your situation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important because that's just so much amazing information. Um, there are t- so many options, maybe too many options <laughs> uh, in a sense. Yeah. But I think parents need to think about where does my child uh, lie in terms of the spectrum of a need, the need? And so uh, if it is something, and also it's individualized in terms of circumstances and mm-hmm. financial burdens, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a really tough decision. But my first question is, if they are going through the district, mm-hmm. and like we talked about earlier, if they are on the cusp mm-hmm. of qualifying, a lot of my students hire advocates. Mm-hmm. Is that something that can help them qualify? Advocates are someone that can help aid you Mm -hmm. in your IEP um, so that to make sure your child can receive the services they need, but also that those accommodations are being implemented Mm -hmm. the way they need to be. Mm -hmm. Would an advocate be able to help that situation? I think it really depends on the situation. I think if a child genuinely does not qualify because in the school setting, they have to meet the educational criteria. And so, and the goal is always what we call the least restrictive environment. So what that means is we don't want to take a child and put them, for example, in a special education classroom if they could be successful in a mainstream classroom with some additional support. So mm-hmm. we're having to consider a lot of the laws around the educational system and as well as, again, behind the scenes, what I can say now that I couldn't say yeah. then is like, what's the manpower? Yes. Or the woman power a lot of yeah. times <laughs> in school. <laughs> um, so I think that an advocate is helpful if an IEP has been held an individualized education plan is established and perhaps it's not being adhered to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I always think that the place to start is to try and partner with the speech language pathologist or the the school in general. Like start there, 
and see if you can get your child the support thing they need or get clarification or make sure that things that haven't agreed to are actually being adhered mm-hmm. to because it's a legally binding document. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and if that's not the case and you can't make headway after making those yes. attempts to partner, because I think that's at the end of the day, like let's all be there for the child. And sometimes when we bring in an advocate, it it sends like a, a it can mm-hmm. lend to an mm-hmm. adversarial feeling Mm -hmm. um that may be warranted like sometimes it is warranted Mm -hmm. um however if the speech language pathologist has clearly shown that the child doesn't meet the criteria then they may not meet the criteria Mm -hmm. despite having their hands are tied Mm -hmm. yeah okay so i think that is really uh powerful because at least you're giving us information uh, from for a parent's perspective in terms a, of a starting point. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you have concerns and if you're under three, then you can rely on the regional center. Or me. Or you. <laughs> Private, in Depending. my experience, in my experience, if you, yeah. in a perfect world, if mm-hmm. you have the finances to be able to seek the best Mm -hmm. (laughs) or the more efficient and more effective services from my experience private is the way to go um, because private um, clinicians will operate in the best interest of your child Mm -hmm. without all of these obstacles um, getting in the way and so if you are able to able to afford a private approach then um you are able to, it's just more efficient. You don't have to jump through loops and go through circles and fight your way to have your child receive the services mm-hmm. they need. And you don't have to keep proving it, proving yeah. it, proving it. That's It's a relentless battle. And it's exhausting for parents and daunting for parents. And it's a long battle. And so somehow if you do have the opportunity to get a private speech therapist, then they can pinpoint the problem immediately with the initial evaluation. Um, They can look at it with a holistic approach as opposed to just an academic approach or medical approach Mm -hmm. and just focusing on, you know, certain areas and really look at your child as a whole and pinpoint it and customize the approach to your child to hopefully have results in Mm -hmm. a certain amount of months to, you know, to however long it may be, as opposed to fighting a relentless battle just to get services to start. Yeah, it can be hard. And I think that insurance route can be wonderful and the school route can be wonderful and the private route can be wonderful. It just has to work for your Mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. And there's providers in all those areas that are outstanding. And just like anything, there's less outstanding. But I think, you know, that zero to three population, there's a regional center and then there's the insurance route and then there's the private route. And I think to add to what you were saying about why private is helpful for those for whom it works is just the flexibility and the convenience. So like in my case, I travel to um, private schools because private schools don't have those services available on campus. And so having someone be able to come in allows us to partner and get those children what they need Mm -hmm. or going in home to people's home where the child feels comfortable and the parents are doing their everyday thing and they get that support in Mm -hmm. real time. Mm -hmm. I think it just allows for some flexibility that some of the other options don't. Yes. And also you get to uh, really get a program that is 
effective because through even if you do qualify from what from my understanding through the district it may be two times a week for 20 30 minutes if you're lucky and oh, so the oh, other wow. thing <laughs> that's well, just so... well it depends what the problem is is what i would say because there's depending on what the problem is there's research to support different numbers of minutes and what's going to be effective so mm -hmm. i'll say that mm -hmm. but aside from that what i can tell you now that i couldn't <laughs> say then when i worked in the public schools is that um because the caseloads are high meaning we have a lot of students to see we have to group them mm -hmm. in bigger groups mm -hmm. in order because mm -hmm. again an iep an individualized mm -hmm. education plan is a legal binding document. Mm -hmm. So the obligation is to see the child for so many minutes. Mm -hmm. But what that means is I'm sharing that time. If I'm having a group of three or four or five students and I'm having to get them from the room and take them back from mm -hmm. the room, even mm -hmm. if it's, let's say, 30 minutes, by the time I've gotten all the kids and taken yeah. them all back and seated them and got them going, yep. how many – I started to think to myself when I was working this with how many minutes did that child actually get mm -hmm. of – services of yes. support. And I did the best I could, as do lots of SLPs in the schools. I would We would talk on the way to, and we mm -hmm. work on their goals on the way to and from their classroom in less formal ways. And mm -hmm. we would sit them down, and we'd come up with as efficient processes as we could. But the reality is, yes, your child may receive the services, and some may be outstanding. And mm -hmm. much of the time, People are just doing the best they can with really limited time and resources. And that's mm -hmm. just something to be aware of, which is why some families actually decide to do the public school and mm -hmm. to supplement yes. with something outside, whether it's through their insurance or to go privately. Mm -hmm. Yes. So parents just really need to gauge and keep a pulse on, is it effective? Am I getting the results um, that I want within reason over time? If not, then it's great to supplement. It doesn't hurt mm -hmm. to have it at school and also supplements, so that's great. So it's up to the parents to really look at the whole picture and totally. make changes as we go, of course, mm -hmm. um, as you collect that data. Well, uh, this was wonderful, Natalie. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. We could have probably stayed here uh, for, hours. for five more hours <laughs> to cover more and more and more. It's an yeah. endless, endless yeah. conversation. But thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for providing so many different resources and um, things to be mindful of. And we hope to uh, bring you back sometime mm -hmm. sometime later in the future. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's been so much fun. I feel like we covered a lot yes. and we still we are still basically scratching the surface. <laughs> yes. But I hope that parents and educators will find it helpful. Thank you so much for joining us on the Brewing Bright Minds podcast. Hopefully this information was beneficial and helpful and as insightful as we feel uh, it is. Please feel free to connect with us. Please leave comments, subscribe, and please share your experiences and any ideas you have to engage in this dialogue.